Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. According to Time Magazine, singer Angelique Kijo is Africa's premier diva. In addition to racking up prestigious accolades throughout her 40-year career, Angelique has always leveraged her success to protect and educate young girls living in sub-Saharan Africa. Angelique Kijo started out singing traditional music as a teenager in her native Benin, West Africa. In 1983, she escaped the conflict-riddled Benin for Paris, where she studied music and eventually married a French music producer. Angelique became one of Paris's most popular live performers, and in 1991, she signed her first record deal with Island Records. Angelique has since released 16 albums and won four World Music Grammys. Her latest album, Mother Nature, was released in June and features young African musicians like Sampa the Great and Burma Boy. On today's episode, Bruce Hedlum talks to Angelique Kijo about the nature of African rhythm and why it can confuse Western musicians. She also explains how she lets her songs dictate what language her lyrics should be and how she managed to escape her home country despite being a recognizable national pop star. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum with Anjali Kijo. It is so nice to have you here. Do I need my headphone? No, I don't think so. You don't like headphones? I hate studios. I only like stage. 
You don't like studios? I mean, I come from a culture where you want to play, you just get the drums out. And you have funny people coming around. I started on stage when I was six years old. I was 20 when I first stepped step foot in the studio and I hated it. I was doing my first album and I have to record from 10 a.m. in the morning till 8 p.m. Doing all the songs. The producer was not there. I was just left alone with, with the sound engineer doing the backing and everything. I get in there and I get out. There's no sun. I'm like, what kind of world is that? I'm not, I'm not a cave woman. I want to be out. <laughs> I don't want to be singing to a wall. I want to sing to somebody. Now, you've done 15 albums at yeah. least since then. Yeah. Do you try and record in different kinds of studios or do you oh, yeah. try I mean, to record in spaces that aren't studio-like? The thing is, in 2000, I decided it was enough of going to the studio and preparing everything. I want everybody in the same room. So when I have the musician with me, it's great. And um, I like that. And when I did my album, Jinjin, with um, Tony Visconti, he's like, I haven't done this kind of album since the 60s. When you open my voice, the drums in it, everything, I said, That's, if you want me to perform the album, you better get me a studio where I feel like it's all in my living room or outdoor, something. I just can't do it like that. So we went to Electric Lady, and he brought in lamp. It was like a souk in Marrakesh. Mm-hmm. And the musicians were all there, Beninese uh, percussion players, Pujibel on drums, and Fiddler on keyboard. It was like one of my best memories of studio. We had lots of fun. It was cool. The album finished, I'm like, is it over yet? It's over two weeks, I didn't see it pass by. So I loved it. And, you know, he produced David Bowie. He produced everybody. Yeah. He'd never done it like that. He'd never just had all the musicians He in said, there. I didn't do it since the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well... Are you going to follow me in that one? Because I was bringing the traditional percussion player from Benin. And we have to rehearse before. And he's like, are you sure we need all this? He was a little nervous. He looked completely worried. I said, Tony, chill. It's going to be all right. And he go, okay. And he saw the calabash. I was explaining to him that we have a rhythm that we play with calabash in the water, in the buckets. And when he heard the sound, the smile just lit up his face. I'm like, you've seen possibilities? And he goes, oh, yeah. I said, wait till we get to the studio, man. Let them play the folded cobble for you. This folded cobble? I say, there are tons of different kind of cobble. Mm-hmm. So we're going to make it easy for you. Just play the music and you do your arrangement, you do your producing, and that was it. So you said there's a particular rhythm that's played on that cowbell. Can you explain what that rhythm is? The fact that the cowbell is folded like a paper. Mm-hmm. So the rhythm goes both ways. And sometimes you, they put it on the head to play it. Sometimes they put it in the hand, but they can't keep the hand flat. They need the resonance. And it has a distinctive sound, very clear, not too uh, high. It has body. And you go... And here's like, I never heard a sound of cowbell like this. But I'm like, hey, there are tons of them. You have symphonies of cowbell in the villages where you have from the smallest one to the biggest one. Mm-hmm. It's huge and it's play on the ground and it's a wall of sound that you just get into the village and stop and you go, whoa. Okay, why are there so many cowbells? Every village have their own rhythm. Mm-hmm. That's the complexity of my country. I mean, like almost 12 million people. When you go from one village to the other, the, the rhythm is completely different. The drums are completely different. And there is a village in the southern part of Benin where I come from called Aja, where from father to son, they are taught how to make the drum. You pick the, the tree and the back of tree and they do the drum you want for you. 
first of all, you said, you know, every town has their own rhythm, their own sense of music. What was, and your town was? Cotonou. I grew up in the, in the, in the economic capital of Benin. What was your town's music? My town with music was a cosmopolitan mu- uh, music town because that's where you have all the band, the Beninese band, Polyritmo, uh, El Rego, Nunas Pedro, all of those guys. But the thing that is interesting for when it comes to rhythm is that you grow up in it. Mm-hmm. Everywhere you go, there's rhythm. Now, one person in Africa will tell you, I don't know how to dance unless they don't want to dance because they know how to put the time on. Our body was an instrument too. The men are, are naked from the shoulder, from the head to the waist, and they have buckets of water. So they play. It depends. It depends if they want different sound. They put the water on themselves and they play. It's an amazing rhythm. It's called a chow. And the way they just go and do and they're singing at the same time, you just, you're mesmerized. Can you just it. clap out what that rhythm would be like? The cowbell is doing this. All the body just play. And then you go, and when he's dead, they start spitting is because somebody's dancing. One thing that is really interesting in the traditional music in my country, and I think pretty much everywhere in Africa, you playing the rhythm, you dancing, it's always in a circle or semicircle. So you have somebody start the song. The people start answering. The cowbell comes in. And the drum comes in, and the rhythm is set. Then when the dancer comes into circle, then the drummer starts looking at the foot of the dancer. It's the dancer that dictates if the rhythm is going to be faster mm-hmm. or slower. You tell a very funny story in your autobiography, uh, and this is years later after you'd met your husband. You would be singing traditional songs <laughs> and talking about rhythm, and he just kept saying, just tell me where the downbeat is. And you're like, yeah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work that way. How did you guys way. ever figure that out? I mean, you say it. <laughs> the thing is, till he arrived and started digging deep in the traditional music, he had a hard time. Mm-hmm. Because he's come from a culture where you go one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. You count the time. All right? And then finally he goes, actually, <laughs> it's a cycle. It's always a cycle. It's going on and around and around. That's what creates the trends. And it's a language also that you have to learn. Because he witnessed that. So the person that is playing the cowbell, he wants to go to the restroom. Somebody pick up the cowbell exactly where he stops and it goes, it continues. We are fed with that. We live in that. It's in our breathing, it's everything because music is an essential part of our being. And he has to understand it. That's a different mindset from the Western world and us in Africa. It's all about the instinct. It's all about how we feel from the bottom of our feet all the way to the head. And my husband, when I used to explain all that to him, that we are not a tradition of recording. And when we were traveling and recording rhythm, I said, one day you're going to get the question. He said, no, everybody's used to recording. I said, no. So one day a guy came. The guy was standing up looking at us like, these white people are crazy, man. What is all this thing? And we didn't have electricity. Most of the time, we plugged the instruments on the car battery. It's crazy, right? right? So the guy came in and, and tapped the shoulder of my husband and said, what are you doing? What is the green? What is the red light? 
I saw sometimes you put in green, sometimes it's red. And Jean said, when it's red, it means we are recording, and when it's green, we're listening. And he stepped back and looked at him and said, why you want to record something that we can play for you endlessly that you can listen to all the time? <laughs> 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 and I look at my husband, he looked at me and said, I told you so. Yeah. You thought I was making it up. That's it for you. <laughs> I mean, and people have to dress. They, they, just, they just cannot take the, dre- the drum and start playing. They have to be ready. I mean, it's no question asked about it, why you have to be clean and, and, and sharp dressed to play the drums. It's because you are giving something. You are talking to people through the drums, and the drums are inviting people to be part of something. It's the moment, because we believe deeply that every moment should be lived to the fullest because we don't know if we're going to be here tomorrow. So every time we put, bring the drums out, whatever the circumstances are, it can be baptism, even when somebody passed away, we sing the person to the grave. Mm-hmm. And we celebrate the memory, the good memory and the bad memory of the person because it's like a part of us that is gone. But that part, we're going to keep it, so we're going to celebrate. When my mom passed away last June, she always used to tell us, the day I die, Angelique, I want you to sing Malaika for me. I said, Mom, how am I going to do that? She said, even if you're crying, I want that in my ears before you put me in a coffin. So I did, which was really hard for me to do. I didn't, couldn't even finish the song. But she really summoned us and said, I don't want anybody to wear black. And I don't want you to be crying. I want you to play music all the time. Play me some funk, some R&B, some hip hop, all kind of music that she danced to. People were looking at us like, your mom just dying, having fun. You guys are crazy. Some people make a comment saying that I lost my soul because I was dancing. I'm like, that's what my mom wants. We like it or not, as hard as it was for us, her children, we, we didn't have the choice but to do what she asked us to do. Even, even though we were all in pain or in tears and crying, we did. Because that's the person my mom is. She's, she's very artistic. She loved theater. She, she loved music. She taught me how to sing, how to dress. All my stage outfit when I was a little girl, she would go to the extent of finding different fabric, telling me, well, you can't wear your everyday clothes. People wear them all the time. When you're on stage, not only are you singing, you are performing. You have to see you in different gowns. We, we should say your mom ran a theater. Yes, yes. She ran the largest theater in West Africa till today. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting in my upbringing is the fact that my parents, their love of music, for, for art in general, and their passion also for sport were combined. Because they always said, whatever instrument you play, even if it's your voice, you're in your body. Your body needs to be in fit. You need to work out to be able to, to, to have a healthy life. And uh, me, I was born with asthma, so, so I started running 15 meters in athletic club in Benin and start swimming. People are telling my parents, you're crazy, you're going to kill your child. And my mom and dad said, no, she has to strengthen her lungs. And step by step, she's going to be able to have a normal life, not being crippled by asthma. My mom and dad also will bring us all kind of music. If the music exists somewhere on this planet, they find it and they bring it. Is it true your dad bought a bunch of instruments because he wanted your brothers to be like the Jackson 5? My father managed to take a loan to buy the instruments. Mm-hmm. And he didn't tell anything to my mom, nor to my brothers. My mom was pissed off. He said, how are you going to pay for this? <laughs> my mother <laughs> said, don't worry about that. We'll find a way to pay yeah. it off. <laughs> and uh, while my older brother was a natural musician, he, he taught himself to play all the instruments. He can play keyboard, guitar, bass, drum, whatever you bring, put in his hand, he will play. And... Uh, 
My mom and dad love music, basically. My mom used to play when she was in high school in a band where she played the clarinet and sings too. But the thing is, my father was that kind of person that believed that the world, as big as it is, he can bring part of it to us through music and culture in general and always urge us to think beyond the door of the house, saying to us, when you get out of here, you are a citizen of this world, and I hope I've given you enough tool for you to, to, to live in this diverse world and challenging world we live in. So music was part of that too, because sometimes he would bring some stuff, weird music sometimes, but when he started bringing classical music, we were like, Dad, what is this? Especially me, I say, that music has no rhythm. <laughs> it was, I think it was Beethoven. I don't know which one he brought. I'm like, man, Dad, we can't dance on that. Now, how did you discover that you had this powerhouse voice? Because, you know, one of your heroes growing up was Aretha Franklin. You had the Amazing Grace record. You know, she had the church. That's where she found out she could sing like that. How did you find out that you had this booming voice? My father used to say to me, when people ask that question, how come your daughter is singing? My father said, I can't tell you. But I remember when she started speaking, she would be talking to me singing. I started singing before I started making phrases. Just because I was surrounded by song. Mm-hmm. There's always ceremony somewhere and I'll be sitting on the lap of my mom and I'll be clapping my hand when I was two or three years old, not understanding anything about anything. And I, I developed that musical memory, not knowing that I was going to be a singer because till I make the, the leap to sing, be a singer, I wanted to be a human rights lawyer or a surgeon. Your country was under a communist dictatorship. And in a strange way, it almost helped you in music at first because... They declared everybody had to have a like a cooperative, they yeah, called it yes, at school. Yeah, and so yes. you formed a band. That yeah. was We formed a band called The Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And so we started playing. The the thing that was not clear about that, we were making and the, the head of the, the, the high school allowed us to do that because it was imposed by the government. But what does the money go? Because they sell tickets and we were not paid. Mm-hmm. What does the money go? So we don't know what the money goes. But we figured out that the head of the school was taking the money to build his house. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And I'm like, okay, enough of this nonsense. I mean, two years before I finished high school, I'm say, I said to myself, enough. I'll do my own stuff and I'll be paid. I don't want to do this anymore. We'll be right back with more from Angelique Kijo after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, 
warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer, so they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with Angelique Kijo. When you were listening to Western albums, when you were a kid, because mm-hmm. you always had music in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned James Brown. You really liked Curtis Mayfield, I think. Did it sound stilted to you? Did it sound like one, two, three, four? Did it sound Western? Or did you hear your music in it? Africa is there. James Brown is the first one that put the beat, first beat on there. He changed mm-hmm. a lot of things. And for me, as an African young little girl, when I first heard James Brown, I'm like, it's not only the rhythm that attracted me to him, is how he plays his voice. He made the English language rhythmic for me. Till then, it was another language like others. And I was not paying that much attention to it in school when I was learning it. And from the moment I started hearing James Brown singing English, I'm like, I gotta sing like this guy because I love rhythm. You speak and sing in, I think, at least five languages. Yes, indeed. Is English a, a harder language to be rhythmic in? No, it's easy. It's easier than in French. French is more, much more complicated. The difference is, how can I say this? The English language, you can say things with one word. And the same thing you say in one word in English, you, you need two or three in France. It's more descriptive, the French language. And the sounds are not the same. 
the vowel or consonants are not pronounced the same. How does that compare then? Your father was... Fon. So you spoke that language at yeah. home. And your mother was... Yoruba and Fon, both. It's absolutely not the same sound at all. How do they compare in terms of singing in those languages? It's different. For example, if you want to say good morning in Yoruba, I say ekaro. And in Fon, mi Fon ganjia. It's already, it's ekbogugba. Ekaro. It's already singing. And Fon is the language of the Amazon. So it's a language of power. Every time I go back to Benin and I start speaking, people turn around and look at me like, You've left this country for how long and you speak this language better than us? I say because I live in the complexity of this language every time I'm trying to, sing, to write a song. As you're writing, does it naturally occur to you it fits this language more You know, sometimes I'm inspired to sing something in other language. I mean, when I was preparing the la- album Mother Nature, there's a song on my, on my demo that didn't make it to the album. We were composing it and I was writing it. I said to me, my, it comes like it had to be Portuguese. No other language was fitting into this. So I wrote my stuff and I put it in Google Translation and started singing in Portuguese. Then I called my friend and said, is this right? This is what I'm trying to say. So she corrected it and it fits perfectly. So I just follow what comes with the song. I don't know what it's going to be. I don't have any control on my inspiration. And that's something that I realize and I learn hardly. When I'm inspired to do something, I will record it. And I'll put it aside and I try to make something beautiful and fit it to it. It doesn't work. And when it hit me that less is more, that's when I realized that the thing that comes first, the thing that bursts out of you, you got to keep that. You got to keep it into that integrity of the thing. Otherwise, it doesn't sound right. When did you learn that lesson? Oh, I was writing music since I was 11 years old. I read a verse and I'm like, uh, something not working. I'm trying too hard. It's not what I wanted to say at the beginning. Then I'll go back and say, let me try what I say. And when, I, when I'm close to it, then I, I find my lyrics. Mm-hmm. And I find my melody <laughs> in my rhythm too. Because the rhythm is there. In the world, the rhythms are there. Everything is comes. If you listen carefully to your inspiration, everything is already laid out for you. And all the rest is just ornament. When you were growing up, uh, you were teased for singing. Oh boy. Was it, it was mainly men who sang and oh, boys? Yeah. Uh, men and girls. I mean, what was hard was when you, I arrived in high school. Because, I mean, it was, when I was in primary school, it was girls because of jealousy. Because I was singing, I would, I would tell them, well, last night when I was out singing in the club, this, this happened, they would look at me, you liar. You, blah, blah, blah. no way you can get, I'm like, okay. So I stopped talking about my concert because they were annoyed and they didn't like it at all. And I didn't have many friends either. And when I arrived, my first year in high school was hell on earth. The first day I arrived, I saw a couple of guys at the door saying nonsense, insulting people. I'm like, okay, whatever. And they would say, you don't belong here. You already finished primary school. What the hell are you doing? You should get married and get out of our way. I'm like, really? Don't dare me. I grew up with seven brothers. The next step was to try to humiliate you. So they will find a stick of wood, and they, I don't know how they do that. They put mirror on it, and you're walking, they're trying to look under your, mm-hmm. your dress. And that I get mad. And 
I remember coming back, coming back from school and telling my dad, you say not to fight, physical fight, but a couple of boys, I want to just crack the teeth off. But my father said, no, you ain't doing that. I didn't teach you violence. My father said, aren't you smart? They think they're smarter than you because they've been to high school before you came in. Outsmart them. Find something they can't understand. Invent a word that means something for you that they don't know. I'm like, gee, that, that's hard. <laughs> How am I going to do this? So I came up with the word batonga, which means get off my back. I will do whatever I want to do and whoever I want to be. How did you come up with that word? I don't know. I woke up one day, it was there in my mind. So I go, batonga. And the guys go, is she crazy? What kind of language is that? Oh, she crazy. This one is crazy. She won't last in school. That's how they left me. That became a big song for you? It's your foundation? Yeah, that stays with me because I realized that when you outsmart people in a good way, even if there's no conversation after that, you have escaped fight. We underestimate our ability to talk people out of nonsense. And from that moment on, for me, it was obvious that fight, war, all those things is our incapacity to come to an understanding. Everybody want to win. It's not possible. What do I care about what people think about me? They ain't paying my bill. They're not my family. They're not my friend. If you can say whatever you want, I'd give it a I learned that because of school. You're pretty fearless about going into countries <laughs> in Africa. Uh, you know, you got it up in, in, in front of pretty hostile crowds and, <laughs> and talked about you know, genital mutilation of girls and all kinds of issues and slavery and sexual abuse. You don't seem to have any fear about talking about stuff on stage. Well, you know, fear is the beginning of the end of our, our humanity. I even wrote a song in this new album said, we are our own enemies. Fear works hand in hand with violence and hate. So unless we decide that we are all equal, free and equal, as the first article of the Human Rights Declaration, and we are not doing it. There are problems in this world, and lots of them are created by our um, complacency, our silence to accept that if it profits me, it doesn't profit other people, I'm okay with it. So every time we make the choice of saying being silent is more comfortable for me, you are putting other people in danger. You're allowing people to abuse, to rape, to kill, and to profit from it. Well, if I live in fear, I won't be here today. As a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador, I've seen so many suffering for children, and that's what makes me mad. Does that, not the rage, but the, the lack of fear, has that always carried over in your art as well? You've done, you've done a time. lot of big projects. All the time. Have you never said, oh, I'm a little worried about this, or I'm not sure I'm getting this right, or, you know, you did a very ambitious set of albums, which is really all about the spread of West African music through the world. Um, we should mention for our listeners, you know, where you come from is basically the cradle of so much Western music. It's kind of the Vienna of, <laughs> of pop music. You've never been afraid of, uh, as an artist to, to put something out? At the end of my day on this earth, I want to be able to die and say, I've done my best. I've done my share. I don't want to die thinking, well, I should have. Because if you live like, live like that, you become bitter. You become a person that you don't want to be. 
But that's helping other people. Are you as confident? You've written so many songs. You've done so many albums. You don't ever question yourself. You always feel you're giving your best. Always. Especially with my music, there's no lie in it because I can't live with it. My inspiration is what I follow. There's not one song in my repertoire that I won't sing with pleasure today. All of it. Because it's right to say what, what you have to say. I come from a culture of orality where the story of my ancestor, the story of slavery have been taught to me by elderly people. And it's different from anything you can read in a book. That interested me in reading your book because you said you got a great education, but they didn't teach you about slavery. No. And you didn't, you learned about slavery when your brother brought home a Jimi Hendrix album. Can you tell me that story? What was interesting on that album is two things. There are two things. The snake above his head. I've never seen snake on any album that much, right? And the Afro. For me, those two things, you gotta be African, especially from Benin, because we worship the python in my family. And I'm scared of it, so I don't like snake. But then I see my brother that was, <laughs> my brother was born with no hair, and he never had any hair. He would wear a, a long tunic, and we put an Afro wig on every time he put that album on. And I went to him, I said, well, I was nine. I said, explain to me, do you need an Afro wig to play the guitar of this guy? And by the way, he's African, right? <laughs> and then he goes, well, he's African-American. I said, are you trying to pull my leg because I'm nine years old? You think I'm stupid enough not to understand? You can't be African and American at the same time. It's two different continents. I know that for so far. <laughs> and then he's like, well, if I start answering you, I'm not going to practice my guitar, right? So go ask, go, go ask a grandma. So the only grandma I can put my hand on was my mom's mother. And she started telling me the story of slavery. And I look at her and I'm like, She's having a, a, a dementia, man. This is not right. <laughs> She's losing her mind. Because my mom and dad will always say to us before we leave the house, a human being is not a matter of color. Don't come back here and tell us you fed because you're black. And I'd be just like, I grew up with that. So I brush it off. I'm like, yeah, well, I guess nobody's going to tell me anything about slavery. Then I turned 15 and I, I learned about apartheid in South Africa. It's just like I was hit by a train running, I mean, a fast train. Boom. And I just lost it. And did you learn about that in school? No. No, they, did, so they didn't teach slavery. I just saw it on TV. They didn't teach no. apartheid. No, I just saw it. I just saw Winnie Mandela talking about Nelson Mandela. Just, and I lost it, literally. And I turn around and see my mom. I, for the first time, I say, why are you lying to me? And I was like, I never scream at my parents. You are not allowed to disrespect your parents in Africa. And I smashed the door, walk into my room, start screaming, liar. I was mad and afraid at the same time. Because suddenly I realized that being black can be a death sentence for me because what is going on in South Africa. And then slavery come to my head, I'm like, Jesus. And I start panicking. Then I wrote a song and my first draft was so hateful. I'm going out there to kill everybody that is getting black people. And my father said, <laughs> my father listened to my song and go, are you serious? Did I teach you hate in this house? Didn't I tell you that there's never going to be hate and violence allowed here? There's no platform for this, no outlet. 
if you want to sing and you want to be an artist, you better think again. I said, what do you mean? He said to me, I understand you're mad, you're afraid, everything. But that reaction that you have is not from the smart girl that I know. You better think about it again. You can write about this situation, but you have to write in a way that goes toward solution. My father said, you can't fight everybody on this planet. You don't have the power to. As an artist, as you told, because they told me that my musician, the traditional musicians say, it's a gift. And that gift, you use it to bring people together. So how do you do that? So I went back and rewrote the song and it became an anthem for peace. And then he said, do you feel better now? I said, yes, dad. He said, as long as you understand the purpose of what you're doing and why you're doing it, and you understand that you are in a position where you hold keys to open doors that are closed, that have been closed forever, through your voice, for what you write, then you can be an artist, a full artist that will go into the world and work with everybody. It stays with me. When you learned about South Africa, was that when you started listening to another one of your heroes? I was listening to her without knowing anything about it. You didn't know? This is no. uh, Miriam, Miriam uh, Makeba. Yeah, Makeba. when I started listening to uh, Miriam Makeba, I was, I was little. The first song of Miriam Makeba that I sang, I was eight years old. And it was the retreat song that my mom and some of her friends have chosen to march in the street asking for women's rights to vote, to dis- no more uh, arranged marriage, uh, their body belongs to them. All those, those things we're talking about, mm-hmm. they were talking about it at that time in 1968. My mom said, come <laughs> Her friend said, we can't sing. You're the only one. They tell my mom, you're the only one that can sing. We sing like, oh, it's bad. Bring your, young, your little girl. She sings good. We're going to put her in the front and she can sing and then we can follow. <laughs> so I started singing that song that they use, they use the music and they put the words of the, 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 the demand in fun. So I was singing that. One of, I mean, I like it because I was under the supervision of my mom. I was not doing my homework and I was like having fun. And I didn't even know what the powerful message that I was singing at eight. I was there among, among all those people singing, but never thought of South Africa because it's not told. TV came to Benin very late, early 80s. So none of those information comes in. My father will listen to the news on the radio. It's a different thing than seeing images. You hear from far and you don't pay attention to it. Because when he's listening to the news in the morning, I'm running to get ready to go to school. So I don't pay attention to what he's listening to. And, and it's, it's really take its toll on me. How do we manage to convince ourselves through our centuries that harming another person and profiting from it is good? We haven't dealt with the, the scope of the damage, the damages of slavery. It doesn't matter which skin color you have because we're still living the trauma of it today. We'll be right back in a moment with more from Angelique Kijo. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, temp-to-hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. 
With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Angelique Kijo. And it was politics eventually that made you have to leave your country. You know, one of the things that interested me so much on this new album is how many young artists you work with. And established artists too. You know, you've got Burna Boy on this, Sampa the Great, and different artists. They no longer have to leave Africa. But you did in order to pursue your art and do what you wanted to yeah, do. Yeah, but they have the technology to stay. I didn't have that at that time. You said your family couldn't talk politics anymore, that there was I mean, self-censorship <laughs> and there was fear. Well, I, I, the thing is today, when I listen to people talking about dictatorship, I look at them and say, I'll tell myself, 
You don't even understand what it is. You don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, what was it for you? Living in a home that become a jail cell where you don't trust anybody that walked in and you always have to look over your shoulder when, you, when I call your dad, dad, instead of calling him comrade. He's my dad. Somebody come in and you call him your father, dad, you can end up in jail. I mean, people crazy, man. You used to take, to get out of your house to do whatever you want to do. You can't take your car and go anywhere anymore. Somebody can come anytime in your house and check you out. They might not like something you say, what something you, where you put something, you end up in jail. And sometimes people disappear. And how did you get out when you left? I mean, it took a year to, for my parents to, to, uh, to organize me leaving. Because you don't trust anybody. So you got to really be careful. No one knew I was leaving. My mom and dad were witness at a wedding of one of our cousins. And they lived not far from the airport. So we make sure that everybody in the street where I grew up knew about that wedding, that we were going to go to that wedding. We, we played the game like that. I dressed like I was going to the party while in the car. My, my father put the car home. In the trunk, I put all my stuff. So when my father and I left after the dinner, because I took the flight that was leaving at 11.55, I have to change my clothes in the car of my dad and pray. From the moment he dropped me, I was, my, I, was, I was on my own. I was over 21. So if something happened, I would go to jail, not my parents. So I would die to protect my parents. I won't say anything. But I was lucky enough that the custom agent that I saw was a friend of my brother's. And he just asked me to just run. And I ran. That's how I left my country. You were already a pop star. Yeah, there. that's you, why. You had an album out? And that's why I, I couldn't say I was going. Because I was already on the radar. Because when I did my album, I didn't, I didn't write any song about the regime. I didn't write any song saying, ready for the, fight, the revolution, the fight continue. I refused that. I said, I'm not going to sing about an ideology. My father had taught me that. Don't use your music for any political party because they come and they go. You want to have a career, don't be linked to it. So then you went to Paris. You had to start all over again. You went to school, you worked. Oh, that was much more exciting than anything else. You liked because, Paris? Oh, yeah. I mean, what I love was that I realized that now every decision that I made for myself can be a good one or a bad one and that I have grown up. Now I'm an adult because first of my dad, I have to pay a rent. I have to find food. I have to work. I mean, the fact that I have to start from scratch was really exciting for me. Nobody knew me. Nobody knows. So for once, I wanted to be a backing singer. I couldn't do it because I was front runner. Also around this time in, in Western music, there were artists like the Talking Heads and Peter Gabriel and later Paul Simon, this was in the 80s, who started embracing a lot of mm-hmm. African rhythms, African sounds. You were not struggling in your career, but working on your career. And suddenly you hear these people come in and start using these sounds. What did, what did you think? Well, the thing is, I, when I arrived in France, that's when I discovered all those things, like the, the talking heads. But the thing was, I didn't know anything about the, 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 the talking heads uh, at all till I get to Paris and here um, uh, with a friend. We were, we were at a student's place and then they start playing uh, the cassettes. When I arrived in 1983, I was a music junkie. Because I had the feeling that the world, the 10 past years, the world have just left me behind. 
and I wanted to catch up so bad. I f- and when I heard the song once in a lifetime, I was so happy. I was like dancing. And then, of course, you always have some stupid racist person say, what are you doing, Angelique? This is not African music. I'm like, well, sorry for your ignorance. This is African music, man. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me, he goes, no. I'm like, just get off my back. But later on, I realized all those things. But the African rhythm have always been in every music, as I said before. Recognizing it or not recognizing it doesn't go away because it's in your DNA. So later, of course, you covered the whole album, Remain in Light. What made you want to do that? Because here you are taking songs that were written to African rhythms by these by this band in New York. What made you want to do that? Well, two things. The first time I heard the song Once in a Lifetime, I was still in my period in France where I would cry every day because of the the ignorance of people and the hate that I have to go through, the racism slur that goes on time and time and time. Every time I open and particularly my, in Paris, you were oh, finding yeah, that? Every time I open yeah. my mouth to speak French, I say, why can't, why can't you speak French that we understand? We need an encyclopedia to understand you. I'm like, but it's your language. That's what I learned in school. What do you want me to speak what? To pay tribute to that song that that day, with all those students around me, when we were reading the fridge of one of them, because he invited all of us, to see so many young kids so ignorant about, about cult, the culture. And that song, that, that day when I listened to it, it brings bring smiles to my face and it made my day. So I've been looking for, because on the cassette there's no name. You, I look everywhere to find the name of this. I didn't know it. Oh, you didn't know? No. I didn't know because cassette, I mean, students be doing cassette, they bootleg like the stuff they put on the cassette. They don't put the title of the stuff. So from time to time, the, the, the melody will come back to me, and I'll be going, and that's the only thing that I remember till I start talking to my, uh, uh, a friend of mine, Danny Capillion, uh, my husband, my management, and I was like, there's a song, I mean, I don't know where it comes from, but I would love to listen to it. And they said, which song? I said, I don't know the title. I just remember the melody. It goes, and then they go, what? That's once in a lifetime. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> and I listened to it. I said, I have to cover this album. They go, no, Angelique, you're joking, right? I said to my husband, let's get to the studio. There are a couple of songs that we record with the traditional women when we were recording. Because for me, Born on the Punches, when I was, I would listen to it, I'm like, this is talking about corruption for me. Corruption, imagine the amount of money that corruption takes away from investing in education, roads, health. And, and that's what you were hearing in, oh, yeah. in Remain in Light? That's why I started, when I started with the, the word that I started, started is, Zoeya, oh, Zoeya, Zoeya, Nida, Zoton, Zoeya, which means when you start a fire, and you don't know how to, to stop it. The fire is going to eat everything up and even you that start the fight. And that's what corruption is doing to our system. When you finally met David Byrne after you recorded it, did you talk to him about how you interpreted his album? Yeah, he knows. I told him that about it. Yeah? <laughs> so you're like, well. <laughs> okay, I do have a request, but could you just say one line? When you sing the 
the shotgun shack line. Yeah. Could you just say that for me? And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Letting the days go by. <laughs> that is so fabulous. Oh, you just made my day. <laughs> so, you know, you did, you started putting out albums and then you did your big album, which was Legozo. Did that have Batonga on it? Yep. Was that on that? Yes, it was this, indeed. Uh, and it was, it was your first album for Chris Blackwell yes, at indeed. Island. Yeah. And it was produced by the, I think the Joe drummer. Joe Gallo. The drummer for Miami Sound Machine. Exactly. And a lot of people... If they don't remember all the songs, remember the album cover. Yes. Because you and that stripe <laughs> kind of look, you look like kind of like the world's coolest superhero <laughs> at that point. <laughs> well, you know, that album, I call it Logozo, which means tortoise. For me, it was my experience when I arrived in France, the Western I was looking at. For me, my image of them is tortoise. They're all going around by business. Something happened, nobody want to be involved. They come back in the shell. So that's why uh, you have the three. The logo I put is see no evil, hear no evil. Uh, mm, speak no, speak yeah. no evil. And is that how you, f you felt like a tortoise? I was living in a tortoise society because I mean, nobody just care about you un unless they want to give you some racist comment. And um, that zebra suit was really interesting because... I just didn't want somebody to put me in the outfit that they think is okay for an African person. Because I've heard that all the time. Well, uh, African people, they, they walk around with their breasts naked. Why don't you do that? I'm like, really? I live, I wear jeans in Benin. I grew up wearing, there's uh, modernity. I never wear them. I never walk around with my material up, out. So I went out and bought my own stuff. I bought my jumpsuit and I'm not wearing it. You don't like it or not, that's the way it's going to go, man. <laughs> and you became friends with Miriam Makiba. later. Yeah. She did not like the phrase, she didn't like the box she was put in, which was world music. Now, you have won a lot of world music Grammys. Do you feel it just puts you in a kind of disadvantage? Yeah, the thing is, <laughs> when you, we're talking about music in general, and we call music pop, this and that. And we, on, we, we just forgot that the blues will not exist without the slaves here. And from the blues, how many forms of music come from the blues? Tell me. All of it. So why should African artists, let alone other artists that are not speaking English or French or Portuguese or whatever it is, have to have a category that is kind of a ghetto category? I mean, we, we, want, <laughs> we want everybody to be, music to be, telling the truth or not because when it comes to music there's no genre for me as long as you can speak the music language it doesn't matter what you do as a music we are the one that put category on music so we like to divide things we like to put things in category to be able to live our, with ourselves because we don't want to even face our own complexity a human being is not simple in your autobiography you talk about this it is so fascinating that the music you grew up with, you know, which was voice and rhythm, was split up by slavery. Yep. Which is why the blues exactly. came out of North America exactly. because Amer American slavers, they took away the drums. Yes, indeed. The ignorance make them believe that 
with the drum from cotton field to cotton field, they can, the slaves can come quicker when they, they can speak through the drum. Because for a long time, drums has been the medium that was used by the king to rally the people. What interested me musically is, of course, what happened with the blues is it's a, it's a West African scale. Yeah, absolutely. It's a five, five notes or six, five. five note scale. And when you were first, you met your husband, Jean, mm-hmm. in Paris. In the jazz school. In the jazz school. You started working together. You were singing traditional songs, traditional melody lines. Mm-hmm. And he was sitting at the piano trying mm-hmm. to sort of figure out how to put harmonies underneath yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, what was that exercise like? It was great because we, we come up with our own harmonization that is kind of a little weird. <laughs> because I would harmonize and then you go, I didn't hear that. And then you go, can you put it here like this? I'm like, yeah, let's try. And I was never shy to try anything as long as it served the song. So it was easy. I would say easy because he knows the blues. He was in a jazz school. He has a master's degree in philosophy, but he has listened to a lot of blues. It was easy for us to start a, com- a communication and a, and a musical language from that blues, actually, that comes. I mean, there are songs in my village, in my family, when they start singing it, you just want to cry your heart out. Can, can you just give me one of those melodies? Ooh, there's one of them that I really, um, that really touches me is, is this one. That song is, so every time I sing, it's just a And what's that song, what's it sung for? Ah, uh, phew. Uh, it's talking about uh, vulnerability in the face of death. There's nothing we can do when death come knocking. And it's talking about what have you done so wrong that every year death come, about, come by and take its toll, take the good or the bad, and mostly take the good people away. How do we, can we live with death always not giving us a chance to breathe. Wow. That seems like uh, a great song for the last year. Thank you so much. Thank you for doing this. It's just been a huge treat. Thank you. Thank you to Angelique Kijo for talking through her history and career with us. You can hear her new album, Mother Nature, along with our favorite Angelique Kijo songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash broken record podcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez. With engineering help from Nick Chafee, our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin Industries, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. Please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richard.
Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.